Jesus does not always do what we want or expect, but he does offer rest for our souls as we follow him. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. I'm going to ask you some questions this morning here. Do you trust God's purposes and plans for your life? Do you trust God's purposes and plans for your life? Do you really believe that he knows better than you and what is best for you? How many of you have maybe struggled with that a little bit at times, huh? Or is that just me, right? Has anybody else here thought that, you know, you needed to inform God of some things or make a few suggestions on better ways of running the universe? Anybody? Or is that just me, right? Well, I should say that was me. I learned a long time ago not to think that way. But sometimes we do, right? Do you really believe that you can trust him no matter what? Or does God sometimes disappoint you? Does he disappoint you? And I wonder, do you ever wrestle with expectations? Do you have certain expectations of God? Now, Scripture certainly tells us of things we can expect from God, doesn't it? There are clear-cut promises that God has made in his word. These are the things that he has clearly revealed and promised in his word. But sometimes I, and maybe a few of us here too, may put other expectations on him that go beyond what he has said. Or perhaps there are things he has said, but we expect him to do it in the way that we want or when we want. But God cannot be manipulated to do for us as we will. And there are times, many times, we must simply say, nevertheless, not what I will, but thy will be done. Right? We're continuing today in our series on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this utterly unique individual in history. And we are continuing to use this material in John MacArthur's book called One Perfect Life, in which he does a beautiful job of harmonizing or pulling together all of the gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and putting them together into one flowing account in chronological order. And so as we continue then working through that, we have today as our theme this idea of expectations, expectations we may put on God versus rest, rest for our souls. Our scripture will be coming out of Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 30, and Luke 7, verses 18 through 35. So it's Matthew 11, 2 through 30, and Luke 7, 18 through 35, a harmony of those passages then. And here is the key idea, the big idea that I want us to take away from this today, and that is that Jesus does not always do what we want or expect but he does offer rest for our souls as we follow him. Doesn't always do what we want, when we want, how we want, 
But what he does offer is rest, rest for our souls. As we follow him, as we are disciples, learners, students of his. We're going to be going through a lot of scripture here today. But before we look at that, a little context for our text. Remember, John the Baptist had declared to the nation that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the long-promised king of Israel who would rule on his father David's throne. And the scriptures had prophesied that Messiah would do mighty works, that he would heal the sick, give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. He would be a great and powerful king who would save his people, deliver his people, the Jews, from their enemies. Now, had we lived back then, many of us, no doubt, would have had the same expectations for the Messiah as they did. They were expecting a great and powerful political ruler, a political king who would defeat their enemies, the Romans, and then reign over a great and powerful earthly kingdom. But Jesus didn't seem to be making a move to do that. Strangely, he even at times would speak of rejection, of dying and rising. Again, a dying Messiah. What is this? Now we might ask, were the Jews wrong? Were the Jews wrong to think of their Messiah as a great and powerful political ruler? No. They weren't wrong to think of him that way. They just did not understand the two comings of the Messiah. They did not understand that he came first to do what? To suffer and to die for their sins. He came first to save Jew and Gentile alike from our greatest enemy, which is sin and death. He would be rejected. He would be crucified. He would die. He would be buried. But then what? He would rise on the third day. And what? He is coming again one day soon as that great conquering king and that political ruler of all the earth. So they weren't wrong to think of Messiah, of him in that way. They did not understand those two comings in the full plan and purpose of God. Even John the Baptist. Even John the Baptist. Let's look in, in One Perfect Life, that's starting Matthew 11. It says, Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he called two of his disciples to him and sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. So as we look at this text, I first want to see here, here's confusion. Confusion. 
what do you think John the Baptist's expectations were for Jesus? Now, he certainly understood that Jesus was more than a man. And he also understood that his mission was much greater than to be only a political savior. How do we know that? Well, listen. Listen to what John said about Jesus when he saw Jesus coming toward him as John was in the River Jordan baptizing. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, it says, The next day he, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness that this, Jesus, is the Son of God. So, John certainly knew that Jesus was more than a man, and he was more than just a political Messiah. John, the Baptist, understood that. But I think, though, that John was expecting Jesus to also, right then... Be the conquering king and political ruler which is prophesied in Scripture. And I certainly don't think John, the messenger of the Messiah, was expected to be languishing in prison. He was in prison. Wait a minute, something doesn't compute here, right? Now, why was John in prison? Well, as we learn from other scripture, he was there for speaking God's word to the king, Herod Antipas. John had denounced the king, King Herod's immoral relationship with Herodias, his half-brother's wife. And so now, here is John in prison wrestling with his expectations of Jesus. This is not how things were supposed to go. Even to the point of wondering, um, you are the the one, right? (laughs) Or should we look for another? It's amazing, isn't it? This is not how things are supposed to go. You're you're the all-powerful son of God. You are the conquering king. You're the long-promised Messiah. But you're not establishing the kingdom as I understand the kingdom. And here I sit in prison about to die. This was not the plan. Have you ever felt that way? Lord, this was not the plan. And so he calls for two of his disciples to come and see him in prison. He tells them to go to Jesus and ask, 
Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah indeed? Or do we look for another? Have you ever felt that way about Jesus? Have you ever been disappointed by him? So the disciples of John went to Jesus and they asked him if he was indeed the Messiah. Or should they look for another one? And how did Jesus answer? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. A little mild rebuke, a little confirmation, but a little mild rebuke, though, too. And when the messengers of John had departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we saw confusion on John's part, but then reassurance. Let me ask you, do you you think God understands when we wrestle with questions and doubts? Absolutely he does. But look how Jesus answers John's question here. He simply points them back to Scripture and shows them that he was doing the things that Scripture says that he, the Messiah, would do. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, even the dead are raised. But most importantly, as impressive as all of that is, most importantly, what was happening? The poor were having the gospel preached to them. The gospel is far better than blind seeing, lame walking, lepers cleansed, deaf hearing, even the dead raised. You know what's better than all of that? The gospel. And they're having the gospel preached to them. No, Jesus wasn't doing everything that they expected according to their timetable, but he was doing what Scripture prophesied he would do. Jesus doesn't always do everything for you and me according to our timetables, does he? 
But he is doing what he promised, and he will eventually do all that he has promised, won't he? No doubt there were people there who were listening and wondering, and I put this in the vernacular, what's up with this? What's going on here? What's up? You know, like, here's John the Baptist, and they recognize John as, a, as, as this great prophet, and now even John is saying, uh, you're the one, right? And so they said, well, what's up with this? Right? Would you have wondered if you were there? Would you might have been a little disturbed by that? Here was John. You'd been baptized by John. John said, here's Jesus, the Messiah. You're seeing Jesus do all these things, and yet something is not computing here. He's not quite doing what, what we expected. And now even John is saying, uh, you're the one, right? What's up with that? If even John is questioning things, should I? But no, Jesus reassures them. He reassured John, and now he reassures these people here. And he says, why did you go out in the wilderness? John was out in the wilderness baptizing. Why did you go out? What, what were you going out there to see? Were you going out there to see a reed shaken in the wind? Now, I think he's not saying, did you go out there to watch a, a, a reed blow in the wind? You know, he's saying what? A reed shaken in the wind is a metaphorical for what? For a weak person without convictions blowing in the wind. Is that what you went to? Did you go out there to see a weak man of no conviction, easily blown about, tossed here and there in the wind? No, you didn't go out to see that. Did you go out there then to see a man clothed in soft garments? What's that mean? Someone clothed, like what, some royal official, a great king or royal official living in luxury kind of, is that what you went out there? Did you go out there to see a weak, convictionless man? Or did you go out there to see some great king in royal, regal attire? No, you didn't go out there for that. You went out there to see a prophet. And that's exactly who he was and is. He's a prophet. In fact, a great prophet. In fact, he is the greatest of all prophets. How would you like to have Jesus save you? Among those born of women, there has been no one greater. Now, who is Jesus is saying this of the very same great prophet who just came to him, sent emissaries, the disciples to him to say, you're the one, right? And yet he's saying, oh, there's never been a greater one. Interesting, isn't it? In fact, yeah, he is a prophet. He's a great prophet. In fact, he's the greatest of all the prophets. But, but, but he's in prison. What's up with that? And he says, well, there have, con- there have been evil men, violent men who oppose the kingdom. There always have been, and there always will be. So don't be surprised that an evil, violent man, Herod, opposed John and threw him in prison. That's nothing unusual. It's always been like that. But John has faithfully proclaimed the coming of the kingdom. And he is, in fact, the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi 4, verse 5, that Elijah would come before the Messiah. Now, when Jesus said that he is Elijah, he's not saying that John the Baptist was the literal incarnation of Elijah, the same person. He's not. But what was he saying? He was saying that that he has come in that same spirit and power of Elijah as a great prophet. 
who was proclaiming the arrival of Messiah. Now, isn't this good for us to hear? Even the greatest prophet of all wrestled with questions when things didn't go according to his expectations. And Jesus says that even, here's something amazing, that even as great as John is, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. What? What does that mean? You are greater than John? I am greater than John? How is that? I think what Jesus is saying here is that even as great as John is, for those who believe in Jesus, they will have even more advantages in the kingdom as we have the gift of understanding and the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that even better than being a great prophet is to be a lowly member of the kingdom of heaven under the new covenant that Jesus was instituting because now we see and we understand things that even John couldn't see and understand and we have the Holy Spirit of God who indwells us forever. So you're impressed. John, he's the greatest of all the prophets. Well, let me tell you, you're going to be even great. You're going to have even more advantage than that. You're going to have my spirit in you. You're going to have knowledge that even he doesn't have. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees, of course, you knew they were going to make an appearance, right? But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, But to what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, And you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Now there's some kind of confusing language. What is Jesus saying? Well, here's what he's talking about. He's talking about unpleasable unbelief. No matter what, it isn't enough for him. It isn't good enough for him to believe. Unpleasable unbelief. Now, there were many lowly people, including tax collectors, who believed in Jesus. And they honored God then as they repented of their sins. But some, namely what? The Pharisees and the lawyers. Some people just couldn't be pleased no matter what. And so Jesus compares these unpleasable people who just would not believe, no matter what, saying that they're like 
children in the marketplace, they say, what? We played the flute for you and you just did not, and you didn't dance. They wanted to dictate, hey, we're playing the flute, but you're not dancing to our tune. We played the flute for you. I'm not going to pick up this uh, saxophone and play it to him. First of all, because I can't play the saxophone. Second of all, because Dan would shoot me if I did that, right? But what if I were to pick that up and say, I'm going to play this, and I'm expecting all of you to dance for this tune. Let's say I could, right? And I pick this up, and I start playing my tune, but you're all just sitting there looking at me like this, and you're not dancing. How dare you not do what I want, what I expect, right? We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. Or we mourned to you, and you did not lament. See, one is, we're, we're happy and you're not doing what, or what, what we're, we're mourning and you're not lamenting. That was what, you're not doing what we want or we expect. And they even pointed out then, they weren't happy with John the Baptist. And so Jesus points about how, how he, Jesus, and, he, and John the Baptist had two very different approaches and neither one of them was good enough for the Pharisees. Neither one pleased the Pharisees. You say, well, here's John. He's out in the, the wilderness. He came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. That is what John came refraining from celebration, and he's very austere and repent. But instead of listening to him, what do you do? It's like, ah, oh, he has a demon. Of course, they would later accuse Jesus of having a demon too. Stay tuned for that next week. Right? But he says, oh, he has a demon. Meanwhile, on the other end, here's Jesus. He comes, he's eating and drinking. He's saying, what? Jesus is celebrating. John isn't celebrating, and he has a demon. Jesus is celebrating, and, oh, he's a glutton and a drunkard. And not only that, the people that he celebrates, that he eats and drinks with, hmm. The wrong kind of people. How many, yeah, how many of you know some of those people, those wrong kind of people? How many of you are those kind of people, those wrong kind of people, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So John, he has a demon. Jesus, you're a glutton, you're a drunkard, you're a friend of tax collectors and sinners. How awful, huh? In other words, what? unpleasable unbelief. And then he says, but wisdom is justified by her children. What does that mean? Well, I think what he's saying there is that who are the children of wisdom? These are the ones who are the followers of Jesus who would prove the wisdom of his words and how they live their lives for the glory of God. Their lives would be the evidence of the truthfulness of his words and what he's saying that both the ministries of John and Jesus were right and godly. Are there times when we need to refrain from celebration and we need to mourn? Absolutely. In fact, Jesus is what? That, that's, how, that's how the celebration starts, is by mourning first, right? Mourning over our sins, grieving, repenting. And then comes the celebration of the gospel, Both the ministries of John and Jesus were right and godly. But some people didn't get it. Some people even who had seen a lot. 
says, then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Speaking of unpleasable unbelief. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. By the way, why was Capernaum exalted to heaven? Because Jesus set up shop there, and that was where his main place of ministry was there. And he said, what? You were exalted to heaven with the presence. You were the headquarters of Messiah. But you're going to be brought down to hell because of your rejection and your unbelief. This is why. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Rebuke. You know, Jesus had done the great majority of his preaching and his miracle working in a very small area on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and some of those towns there, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and his adopted headquarters town, Capernaum. They had seen much. They had seen more. They had heard more than any others, and yet they rejected him. Now, Scripture tells us what we're accountable for what we hear, what we know, And here are the people who had seen the most and heard the most, and they rejected Jesus. He said, you know what? It's going to go easier. There's some of these Tyre, Sidon, even Sodom. You think of what these these wicked towns, that the the people there that will be judged. You know, it's going to be the day of judgment is going to go a little better for them than it is for you. Stunning, isn't it? By the way, and we won't get into all that here today, but I think this does speak along with some other passages of Scripture, that there are degrees of judgment for the lost, the wicked. That just as there are degrees of reward for believers, there are degrees of judgment for unbelievers. And at that time then, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to the babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest. See here, Jesus speaks of, and we're not going to go into it all here today, but here we see once again this tension in Scripture of absolute divine sovereignty and human responsibility. 
Jesus reveals himself to whom he wills. And yet people are also responsible and accountable for how they respond to him. Now how do we reconcile that? I can tell you how we don't, and that's in 30 seconds from the pulpit, okay? But here's the reality. The truth will be hidden from those who reject the light they are given. And the Son will reveal the Father to those he wills. How does all that work out? I don't know, but it's right and just. I know that. And Jesus says, Come to me then, all who labor and are heavy laden. Who are those who are laboring and heavy laden? These are the people who are struggling under the heavy burden of the Pharisees and the Pharisees' righteousness and legalism. Trying to save themselves by their good works and by their obedience to the law of God. Now, are good works and obedience to the law of God important? Absolutely. But is that how we're saved? By our our striving to, to do the good and to obey? No, because if that's good, none of us would ever be saved, could we? No one can be saved that way. We can't save ourselves trying to do what God says we should do, let alone the Pharisees then who add on all this other stuff on top of it. Right? So how are we saved? By grace, by taking on the easy yoke of Jesus. The yoke here is what? It's a metaphor for coming under the discipleship and the instruction of Jesus, being his student. Just like that yoke would guide the farm animal this way or that way, the yoke of Jesus guides us this way or or, or that way. And just as the yoke, the animals would be yoked, joined together, we're joined together with Jesus, and we're being guided and directed by him. And he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now, that doesn't mean that it's always easy to follow Jesus, right? Sometimes it's hard. But what's the alternative? Trying to save ourselves by our righteous, so-called righteous good works? No. So this is the, the yoke of discipleship, of learning from Jesus. And when we learn from him, we, we put aside self-righteous efforts to save ourselves. We receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who saves us, who delivers us, we enter into a lifelong walk or discipleship with him in which he teaches us and instructs us in the way we should go. We learn from him. And then that we find rest for our souls. We find rest from the impossible burden of trying to save ourselves. And we find rest from the heavy load of life in this world. You know, we were just talking about that a little earlier this morning, weren't we? About the pain of life in this world. Pain in in this community. Pain and sorrow, disappointment, loss, defeat, despair. Weeks like we've been through this week in this nation. But Jesus offers us rest. Rest from all Rest from the impossibility of saving ourselves, but I believe it's also its rest from our souls, from the heaviness and the despair of this world and this life. 
You know, I was just talking with someone earlier this, this morning here in church, and I was talking about, she was mentioning a, a, a problem that she's having, and, and um, she's going to be having some surgery soon to help with that. And she said, I can handle the pain if I know it's going to go away. I said, ha ha, I'm going to use that. Right? See, that's, that's the rest of Jesus, isn't it? It's handling the pain because we know it's going to go away. He doesn't promise to immediately take away all our pain, does he? But he will. It's going to go away. So what? Jesus does not always do what we want or expect, but he does offer rest for our souls as we follow him. Have you found rest for your soul through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, abandoning all efforts to save ourselves, to be right with God by our own efforts and good works, and found rest by simply putting your trust in him, in his perfect life, his death for us on the cross, his resurrection from the dead? Rest for our souls. Do you trust God's purposes and plans for you? We all have expectations. There are things that we can very clearly expect God to do because he's very clearly promised that. But what we can't do, what I have done before, I'm sure what others have done, is to try to dictate to God exactly what that looks like, when and how. Do you trust him in his purposes and plans for you? Finally, then, are you submitted? Are you submitted to the daily yoke of Jesus? Taking his yoke upon yourself, strapped there together with him and following his direction in our lives. Finding rest for your soul. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know, Lord, that we are incapable of saving ourselves. It's an impossible burden. But you've done it for us, Lord. You've done the hard work of salvation for us. And you call us then, Lord, to enter into that lifelong fellowship with you, of discipleship, of learning from you, being yoked to you, Lord. I pray, Father, for those of us here now who are carrying a heavy load, the the pain and the, the disappointment and the despair that can come from life in this world. Thank you that you offer rest for our souls. And thank you, Lord, knowing that we can bear up in the pain because we know it's going to go away. Thank you for that, Lord. May we follow you faithfully then today and all the days of our life. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.